You're listening to Matt Walsh on demand. Thank you for listening. Man, it's been, a, it's been a busy week, hasn't it? And this Ted Cruz announcement. Ted Cruz announces that he's running for president, as I'm sure you heard. Um, I was happy about that announcement because I like Ted Cruz. Uh, but then, then I, I think it was that night that he, that he announced that Peter King went on, uh, I believe it was Fox News, and said that if Ted Cruz wins the nomination, if Ted Cruz or Rand Paul win the nomination for the Republican Party, he, Peter King, will jump off of a bridge. And then I thought, well, um, now I have even more reason to support Ted Cruz or Rand Paul, because that's one thing I like about those two, that they are both despised by establishment, by these bloated Republican establishment hacks like Peter King and John McCain and Lindsey Graham, just poisonous people. Those guys, poisonous to the republic, neocon, war hawking, gas bags, in it for their own power and nothing else, arrogant, arrogant people. And uh, the fact that Ted Cruz is despised by guys like that, I think, is, um, is a big plus. I'll say this about Cruz. I like him. And I said all this on Facebook a couple days ago. I'm not an expert on every position that he holds. I'm not a Ted Cruz expert. But I think he's more right more often than than most of the other people in the potential 2016 field. And he's strong on social issues, which is important to me. And despite what establishment Republicans will tell you, it's important to to all Americans, as a matter of fact, right or left. So I, I appreciate that. And he's never, to my knowledge anyway, equivocated on things like abortion and gay marriage. Seems to be a consistent small government, uh, low tax guy, good on gun rights, good on liberty, very knowledgeable of the Constitution, very consistent in his defense of it. Not liked by mainstream Republicans, extremely intelligent. All of these are very good things, really good things. And he's a gifted politician, and he he knows how to articulate his points of view. He knows how to, to, to launch an argument. He knows how to win an argument. He knows how to argue. He knows how to speak. He knows how to communicate. And that is something that we cannot take for granted when it comes to Republicans. We have not had a um, Republican nominee who you could really say this about. When was the last time we had a, a Republican nominee who really knows how to argue and articulate a point? Who could really mix it up and get in there and go after somebody? When was the last time we had a Republican nominee like that? It ha- I'll, I'll put it this way. We haven't had one like that for as long as I can remember. I, I mean, we haven't had one like that for my entire life. So so I'm all about that. However, there are, there are some, some drawbacks. And... Um, even if you, you like Ted Cruz like I do and you're, you support him, you have to deal with the, the drawbacks and admit that they're there. He doesn't have any executive experience to speak of. He's a young guy. I think he's 44, 45 years old, which should be fine, except that he's, that, that, uh, he's a first-term senator and his experience before becoming a senator is, well, as an Ivy League college professor and lawyer and political advisor – so he's never managed anything, 
and he's just been ensconced in this D.C. academic elitist sort of environment, and it doesn't appear that that has corrupted him. Far from it, because he's rejected by those kinds of people, which is great. But these are definitely negatives. I don't have any particular urge for yet another Ivy League lawyer in the White House. I don't know about you. But we can overlook that. However, I, I will, I will um, emphasize, and I think this is really important for anyone, you know, whether you're Ted Cruz guy or anyone else, we should not be, and I can't say this enough, please do not be fans of politicians. And, and I've seen this a lot on social media. A lot of people de- declaring themselves, I'm a, I'm a Ted Cruz fan. I like him as a candidate. But no matter what happens, even if I vote for him in the primary, even if I vote for him in the general, I'm not a fan. Never be a fan of a politician, ever. Never. Never describe yourself as a fan. Never be a fan, please. And this is a message that right, left, in between, it doesn't matter. Never be fans of politicians. Politics is not the right time to take out your pom-poms and be a fan. Always be critical. Always look at it from a distance. Always be skeptical. Even if you find somebody you say, I like this this person, I'm going to vote for them, I think there are a lot of positive aspects to them, still be skeptical. Because the problem is once you become a fan, you're not skeptical anymore and you're not critical. And you, you always know the political fans. And when you try to engage them in a conversation about that politician and bring up some, some substantive criticisms, they get personally offended. They get personally offended that you're, that you're criticizing their favorite politician. And that's when you know someone has crossed over from being just a reasonable American voter who supports a particular candidate to fandom. Never be a fan. And I don't care if tomorrow Ted Cruz rushes into a burning building and uh, saves an orphaned bald eagle and comes out reciting, you know, the Bill of Rights by memory. Even if that happens, and that would be pretty cool, don't be a fan. Now, the other thing uh, I wanted to talk about, you had, well, can I still talk about race in America? Can I still have that conversation? Is that still okay? I know Starbucks canceled its Race Together campaign, and so I don't know if it's too late. I guess they, they canceled it because they solved racism. So now I guess I'm, I guess it's not really topical anymore to talk about race or racism now that Starbucks is, you know, they launched their campaign and they ended it because they solved the problem. But, and, and you, you heard about this, I'm sure. I mean, everyone heard about it last week. The strategy announced by Starbucks CEO was that, um, the baristas would write hashtag race together on random customers' cups, indicating that they wish to speak with that customer about race, and then some kind of racial uh, confabulation would occur uh, between the customer and the barista in this crowded and noisy coffee shop connected to a Barnes & Noble while a line forms behind them because that's the perfect context for that conversation. Right? That was the idea. And it was certainly an inventive marketing ploy. And I, I was wondering and hoping that maybe it would catch on across the food and beverage industry. And we could start looking forward to having, you know, these hot button social discussions with all different types of customer service representatives. So, you know, you're in, you're in line at uh, Dunkin' Donuts and you're talking to the guy about gay rights. And then you go over to Subway and you're talking about the, I don't know, the ethics of circumcision. I mean, anything. You could divide up all the different social issues and, and hand it out to the different fast food establishments. 
Um, but I guess that's probably not going to happen now that they, they canceled the whole thing. And they canceled it because Starbucks took a lot of heat from from both sides, from all sides, about this idea. I think that, although I didn't like the idea either, and I'll explain why in a second, I, I do think that some of the criticisms were unfair. First of all, and, I, and I've actually heard from, and I was just reading a Facebook message from a, from a Starbucks barista, and she's not the only one who said this. You know, she messaged me, and um, she, she said, you know, uh, I'm a conservative person. I work at Starbucks. And you know something? While this whole race together thing was, was going on, I never talked to anybody about race, but all of these customers would come in and bring it up to me in this very mocking tone and sort of like they're blaming me for this campaign that the CEO came up with. So a lot of the criticisms were targeted at the baristas at Starbucks, and I think that's really unfair. And, I, and I've read some of the um, you know different pundits giving their opinions, and they would almost always throw in a little jab at the baristas, saying, well, these college students in their skinny jeans, and they're not qualified to have this conversation, those baristas, the coffee jockeys, morons. I mean, that's that's unfair because I, I've been in a lot of Starbucks in my time because I enjoy the product. And maybe your experience has been different. But my experience is that for the most part, the baristas are uh, perfectly friendly and, and, and fine people. And, uh, you know, sometimes they're younger, sometimes they're older. And by all accounts, perfectly intelligent. They're not any more or less equipped or qualified to talk about it than anyone else. So I, did, I didn't really like the anti-barista rhetoric. The anti-barista bias that was uh, exposed from all this. And I think it's it's less of an anti-barista bias as it is just an anti-customer uh, service bias. And it's this weird kind of snobbery that we all still have about people that work in the customer service industry. And it comes out in situations like this where we don't usually say it, but it comes out in situations like this where we unload our opinions that really they're all a bunch of idiots because they're working this very lowly job. And, of course, that isn't true. But the second reason I didn't like some of the criticisms is that um, some people seemed offended at, at the very notion that you would try to talk to a stranger about a serious topic. And I'm not on board with that criticism because... Uh, I am totally in favor of having substantive exchanges with strangers because I hate small talk. I hate it. I mean, I would much rather converse about an actual issue of some kind than, than what, you know, the weather or my favorite fruit or whatever people babble about when they need to ruin the silence by, you know, filling it with noise. I don't even know it. I don't know how to have small talk. I, I think that, um, and it's not just for this reason, but there are many reasons. Uh, this might be one of the primary ones that I, I believe that I'm not really a human being. And I, I think that I was, uh, I don't know, if my parents adopted me from some kind of space alien foster home and never told me because I just, I can't, there are some things that all people seem to be good at that I'm just not. And it's so foreign to me. And small talk is one of them. Everyone seems to be good at small talk, but me. Uh, not only am I not good at it, but it's like I, you, once you, tr you try to get me going in a small talk conversation, you really might as well actually be speaking Greek or Chinese because I don't even understand. I'm, I, don't even, I don't understand what's going on. I cannot converse with you. 
It makes me seriously uncomfortable, which isn't to say that I'm uncomfortable talking to people. I just like to talk about things. I love talking to people about something. And it doesn't have to be a really serious conversation, but about something. Let, let me give you an example. Um, of course, as someone who hates small talk, my, my the, the, the place that I fear the most in the entire world is an elevator. And I would rather, honestly, if I had a choice between being stranded alone in the Amazon jungle or being stuck in an elevator, for, you know, in a stalled elevator for like 45 minutes with a stranger, I would take the Amazon jungle in a second. I hate elevators, and I was in a – because the elevator is a place where, you know, you're in this confined quarters with somebody else, and they always feel the need to start small talk with you. And I was at, in an elevator at a hotel recently. I was boarding the elevator, and I saw somebody coming from far away, and I didn't make any attempt to hold the door for, for him, I'll be honest. But then he, he makes eye contact with me and says, hey, hold the door, and I'm like, ugh. I got to hold it. So I hold it and he gets on and we're both going to the 14th floor, which means it's going to be a long trip all the way up there. And as the elevator is going, uh, he, he turns to me and he goes, um, uh, man, this is a slow one, isn't it? And I say, what, uh, the what? And he said, it's an elevator. The elevator's going real slow. And I said, yeah, um, yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's uh, uh, um, slow. It's a slow elevator. Yeah, it is slow. And and then and see, when I observe uh, humans in their natural habitats having small talk, I always notice that uh, the people that are very good at small talk, like my wife, for instance, very good at it. And what she'll do is when someone starts a small talk conversation with her, she'll, you know, someone will say, well, you know, that's a, it's really nice out today. And she'll say, yes, it is. But she won't leave it there. She'll continue. You know, that's what the person expects you to do is continue with some other banal observation. And so she'll say, yes, it is. And it was colder last week. So I thought, well, that's what I'm supposed to do. I guess I'm supposed to continue this exchange. That's what he expects me to do. So there was a, and I said, yeah, it's just a little elevator. And there was a, a silence. And uh, then I continued and, and I said, yeah, um, you know, uh, uh, it's not the slowest elevator I've ever been on, um, I, you know. And he said, oh, yeah. And I said, yeah, I was in a, I was in a elevator, um, in, uh, <clears throat> Texas. That was, a, it was, you know, it was a lot slower. Uh, it was a slower elevator. Um, and it's so, but I mean, sometimes I've been on faster elevators and I've been on, uh, you know, elevators that are, you know, just normal, like a normal, you know, speed. Um, so I've been, it's, you know, and, uh, so this elevators are, they just go and, and then, and then we got to our floor and, and we both got off and we felt very awkward and I, and I left that exchange feeling much worse than I had going into it. And then I, I had to replay that conversation in my head for the next like 62 hours, wondering what I could, could have done differently. So the point is I hate small talk. And in fact, rather than that guy turning to me and commenting on the speed of the elevator, I would have much rather he turned to me and uh, say, you know, um, Hey, what do you think about capital punishment? I would have much rather had that. I would have much rather talked about that issue than talk about the speed of the elevator. I would have been in my element then. So that's why the idea of, hey, let's talk about something, I like that idea. But, of course, the problem is that for Starbucks, it was nothing but a, a patronizing marketing gimmick. And that's why I wasn't a fan of the Starbucks initiative either. And it just, it reeks of condescension, self-promotion, 
and with the trendy name and the trendy hashtag. And, and worst of all, it was quite evident that these powwow sessions at Starbucks were supposed to be designed to mirror virtually every other similar session that occurs anywhere else in society when it comes to race, which means that it all fall, it all follows the same script, and the script goes something like this. Um, white people are racist, black people are oppressed, and discuss. But our conversations could potentially bear fruit if they were honest. Yet few people are interested in speaking honestly about this topic or really any topic which makes the entire thing um, a charade. You know, if Starbucks intended to initiate truthful dialogues about race, then I'd say that um, probably more constructive forums for it, but I'd respect their boldness. But of course, no business that wants to remain in business would ever encourage its employees to have challenging and brutally honest racial discussions with their with their customers no business would do that for good reason at least of all a business like starbucks that wants to maintain its progressive liberal reputation so it was all a sham a show a circus act and uh i mean starbucks got plenty of publicity out of it so it i guess as far as they're concerned it worked i don't think they quite solved racism but they did probably sell a few extra lattes so um close enough i guess but the, the problem remains because these days when the topic turns to race, everyone seems to stop making sense. And nothing can be accomplished in any conversation if we aren't trying to make sense and be rational. An honest conversation about race could be very valuable, whether it happens at Starbucks or at Arby's um, or at Jiffy Lube or any company or just out in society at large. An honest conversation about race could be very valuable an honest conversation about anything could be valuable so so i thought although starbucks has abandoned the idea i thought that uh, i would try to contribute to the overall dialogue by laying out a few honest but unpopular truths about race and i think all of these things must be acknowledged and dealt with if we're ever going to progress as a nation in any discernible way before I get to the unpopular truths, I think I should start, you know, as a white person, I should make a few white people concessions. And, um, and these aren't really unpopular concessions, but, but I, I think they need to be mentioned. The first one is that obviously blacks were in chains in this country 150 years ago. And up until the middle of the 20th century, they didn't enjoy all of the same basic rights as the rest of us. And that is a unique um, history that, that, that black people have in this country, at least in this country, it's unique. It's certainly not unique worldwide, but in the United States of America it is. And that needs to be acknowledged. We can't downplay that. And, and I think sometimes the, the historical plight of the black American is downplayed by white people. And I, I think actually it's primarily downplayed when you see how that plight is often co-opted and hijacked and, and, used by by people nowadays trying to kind of puff up their own victimization the best example of that would be homosexuals modern day homosexuals will often compare themselves to slavery era blacks and civil rights era blacks they they will often do that they'll say that their struggle for quote marriage equality is similar to what black people went through 
to defeat slavery and earn civil rights in America. And it's all very disgusting and it's ridiculous because, you know, find me a gay person who are gay people routinely locked in sheds and, and used like mules and barn animals. Are they literally owned as property? Is it legal to take a gay person out into the middle of the, the street and hang them from a tree? Is that legal to do? Do they separate gay people from straight people at the lunch counter? Make them sit at the back of the bus? Does any of that happen? No. So stop trying to compare the two. It's ridiculous and it's offensive. And I wish that more black people would speak, and some of them do, but I, I wish more would speak up and say, that is, that's, that's racism right there to, to, to make that comparison. It's racism because it's such an egregious a dismissal of what black people went through in this this country to compare the two it's it's disgusting and it's just wrong so that's one thing that needs to be mentioned up front the second one the second white person concession is that uh white people need to stop complaining about historically black colleges and you know black entertainment television black history month all manner of other institutions clubs groups whatever that cater specifically to black people you know, you hear white people complain about it. Well, why isn't there a white history month? Why isn't there a white colleges? Why isn't there a, a white entertainment television? And, you know, the thing is, it would actually be racist to have a college for only white people. Yet it's not necessarily racist to have a college for black people. And the reason is that black people are a people. Okay, as in they are a culture, a group with a shared history and experience. Um White people aren't. It's, it's too broad a category, too general of a term, too disparate. I don't know about you, but I don't feel any camaraderie with, uh, with white people in, in general. It, I don't dislike them, but I don't feel like, oh, well, you know, these are my people. We have a shared history. We can get together and, you know, we, we, have, we, have, we have a shared culture. That doesn't really exist with white people in general. Now, it, for me, you have to break it down into smaller groups. So I do feel that with, uh, say, people who share my faith. I feel like, well, these are my people, shared history, shared experiences. I want to get together with, with, with people who are in this group you know, and have that, that bond. Not that I don't want to be around people from other faiths, but it's important for me to have this bond with people in my faith. So I would say those are my people. To a lesser extent, um, you know, I do feel some connection to people with uh, Irish ancestry. Like, like I have in my family. But the point is that I think black people feel this cultural connection with one another, whereas white people, it doesn't really exist. And that's just the way it is. And, uh, there's, and the point is there's nothing wrong with that on, on either side of it. There's, we get so obsessed with the notion of diversity that we think it's never okay for people to say, you know what, I want to be around. It's not that I hate other sorts of people, but I want to be around my people. It's not, it's not wrong for people to say, I have my people and I want to be around them sometimes and have this special and close connection with them and be grounded in a, in a, in a community um, of people that are like me. That's not wrong. In fact, it's good. It's good for people to feel that way and to want that and to pursue it. And that's all important to establish, I think, but these are not really unpopular truths. Um, the unpopular truths about America in my mind, are, uh, number one, and this should not be unpopular, but it is, white Americans did not invent slavery. And this is only unpopular or uncomfortable to anyone who wants to paint the United States as uniquely evil for its history of slavery. Because that's what happens so often. For instance, I just just one example. I mean, there I don't even need one example, but 
Just one example, an email I got um, last week. So we were talking about the Starbucks thing on Twitter, and somebody emailed and said, Matt, what you don't understand is that black people do have a reason to think America is evil. It was born in slavery and built on the backs of slaves. That's evil. Now, it's true, okay, that uh, the United States was established during slave times, but if that makes our country evil, then the same has to be said about most parts of Africa, Europe, Asia, the Middle East, Central America, South America, uh, by this sort of logic, virtually the entire world is inherently evil because every corner of it was steeped in slavery right up until the institution was finally defeated by Americans and Europeans. Slavery goes all the way back to the beginning of human civilization. The Egyptians took slaves. The Mayans took slaves. The Romans took slaves. The Chinese took slaves. The Indians took slaves. Black, white, brown, they all took slaves. Now, this doesn't negate uh, the evil of the institution for any one group that participated in it, but it does make it absolutely impossible to paint Americans as somehow uniquely responsible for it. And it also exposes that uh, it's, it's absurd to, to have kind of this white guilt over slavery. There should be no white guilt any more than there should be black guilt or brown guilt or anything else. And forget for a moment that white people in the U.S. today had nothing to do with it. Uh, which means that we in no way must answer for it. And forget that in, in many cases, including mine, our families were often, you know, for me it was Ireland back when slavery was uh, still legal here in the United States. So I, I have no connection to it at all. But that's all relevant. But the more important point is that slavery is not the white man's sin. It's man's sin. It's a sin of the human race. And I think rather than discussing the slavery of the past, talking about the impact that it's had on the present. I'm not saying that we should never do that, but if we're going to do that, then we should also mention that, you know, slavery is happening in the present. Slavery is still an institution in some parts of the world. And when I say some parts of the world, I mean specifically Africa and the Middle East. It's still going on there. And it's not white people enslaving black and brown people. It's black and brown pe people enslaving their own in those parts of the world. Now, slavery also happens in the United States, but um, it's uh, the slavery that we have here now is sex slavery. It's the, it's the sex trade. And it doesn't prey upon any particular race, but it does prey primarily upon, you know, underage. And that happens in the United States. And it's a serious issue, but it's very disconnected from the other historical slavery that we discuss. There is a slavery similar to historical American slavery happening right now currently in places like Africa and the Middle East. The second unpopular truth is um, that the black community has a history of preying upon itself. Like I said, these are unpopular truths, but they need to be talked about. The black community has a history of preying upon itself. And this, this goes all the way back to slave times. How do you think the slave traders got those slaves in Africa? Most of the time, they were sold to the slave traders by African warlords. So Africans sold each other, sold themselves into slavery, sold their own people into slavery. Fast forward to modern day, and you have to ask, who is responsible for killing thousands of black people in the inner cities every year? Who, who poisons black children by selling them drugs? Who has aborted tens of millions of black babies? Who leaves black children fatherless? The answer is, well, other black people. Now, Yes, white people do the same to themselves. White people 
kill each other and white people have abortions and white people sell each other drugs. I think per capita, it's not as common, but of course it does happen, obviously. But as we've already established, and as I admitted, uh, white isn't really a community. You know, white, there is no real white community. And because it isn't a community, maybe we don't get our own colleges, which like I said, fine. But then when a white person shoots another white person, it isn't a community preying upon itself because as liberals constantly remind us, and I agree, the white people aren't a community. But black people, that is a community, and I agree that it's a community. So the black on black violence is not just a cliche. It is significant for that reason. I mean, besides the fact that we have human beings who are dying, uh, it's also significant because it's a community destroying itself. But I think race conversations are often derailed right here at this point because we're not supposed to ever talk about this part of it, except that we can't discuss the plight of any group without acknowledging that group's responsibility in its own plight, which leads us to number three, which is related. Uh, number three, unpopular truth about race. And it's that the systematic problems of any group can almost always be traced back to the family. So again, we, we blame um, slavery for the current state of black America, even though, you know, we act like America is uniquely evil for slavery, even though America practiced slavery for a shorter amount of time, abolished it quicker and had fewer slaves than any other country in the history of the world. But, but we do that, yet we ignore the things that are closest to home, as in the home itself. 70% of black children grow up without fathers, 70%. In some cities in America, like, like in New York, for instance, a black child is more likely to be abort, aborted than born, okay? More likely to be killed in the womb than allowed to live by his mother. Now, the state of the family as an institution in America is imploding across the spectrum, white or black, it doesn't matter. The, the family is in dire straits. However, that, that, that uh, collapse is much more severe and happening certainly more quickly in the black community. And in fact, it's at the point with 70% of black children grow up without fathers in the home. It's at the point where the biological family in the black community is, is almost uh, extinct. It almost no longer exists in America. That's how bad it's gotten. It's a crisis. It's such a crisis that among, among white people, the fatherless homes, I think, are at 25 30%, which is still astronomically high, but we don't even look at it or even notice it because we're comparing it to 70%. If we're going to talk about race in America, we have to talk about this. And if we don't talk about this, then the conversation is worthless. And every single person who wants to talk about the state of black America yet chooses to ignore this fact is a liar. They're liars if they ignore this fact about the family. And I'll tell you why this is especially relevant. Because when uh, black teenage male, we look at uh, black teenage males are much more likely to commit violent crimes, much more likely to end up in, in prison. And we're often told that this is a product of systematic racism. And they're dis disenfranchised by the system, quote unquote. And because of that, they turn to crime and they're profiled and they end up in, in, in jail and all this. But while we're being told about the system, you know, this abstract concept, this, 
this this giant enormous thing called the system. While we're, while we're while we're being told about that, the fact is that the vast majority of these um, black teenage males who get into trouble and uh, commit violent acts and commit crimes, the vast majority of them grow up without fathers. They have no solid male role models in their life, and we're supposed to believe. That it's the system driving them to this life and not the fact that their fathers and the males in their lives abandon them? Sorry, no. Because I don't care if you're black, if you're white, if you're Asian, it doesn't matter. I don't care what your history is. None of that matters. The point is, the moment you conceive a child and bring a human being into this world, you have a choice to stick by them and raise them and be there for them or not to. And if you choose not to, that was your choice. And you know what you're doing, system or not. And you are perpetuating, then, um, the crisis. It's not the system. That is you individually. Those men who abandon those boys, they're the ones who are perpetuating this problem. Don't tell me about the cops. Don't tell me about the system. Tell me about the fathers that choose to abandon their children. All right, the fourth unpopular truth is... um, and this is kind of going off in a different direction, but I think it's important to note that uh, speaking of self-destruction, it is self-destructive for minorities to remain loyal to the Democrat Party. If we're going to talk about race, then I think we should bring this up as well. And especially if we're talking about the system, if we're talking about the system and the government and how it keeps down minorities, well, it's racial minorities by and large choose to remain loyal to this political party. They choose to perpetuate the problem in the system by putting Democrats in charge of it. The Democrat party, which as everyone knows is the party of slavery, the party of Jim Crow, the party of the KKK, the party of eugenics and Margaret Sanger, the party that opposed civil rights, the party that today uses black people like pawns, keeps them poor, under the thumb of government, with welfare dependence, supports the wholesale slaughter of infants. That's the Democrat Party. So if we're worried about changing the system, then I think all, everyone in general, but particularly racial minorities who are, who historically and today have been victimized by Democrats, they need to, you know, the, the people in that group Racial minorities need to stop and, and think, why are, we, why are we voting for these people? What, I mean, literally, what have they ever done for us? And the answer is nothing. Nothing but put you in chains, keep you, keep you oppressed, and kill you. That's all Democrats, from going back to the 1850s till now, that's all Democrats have ever done for minorities. That's it. And when I say minority, I mean any minority. Democrats have been horrible to all minorities, and... Who do you think put Japanese Americans in internment camps? Yeah, that was Democrats too. So I think that brings us to our fifth and final unpopular truth about race. And in fact, this is just an unpopular truth truth um, about everything. It's just an unpopular truth in general that your choices are your own. This shouldn't really be unpopular at all because it's it's uplifting and it's encouraging. All of this talk about race, it's really almost irrelevant because whether you're black or white, um, man or woman, no matter who you are, you can choose to make the right decisions with your life. 
you could choose to better yourself. You can choose to be ambitious and go out and try to conquer the world and, and do the right thing and make decisions that will actively make your own life better. That's something that we can all choose to do. And this is why um, non-liberals tend to get very fr- – well, one of the many reasons – why we tend to get really frustrated with, with liberal thought is because for all of its talk about choice, it is actually the most anti-choice ideology that's ever existed because it tries to take choice and free will out of it. It's constantly trying to make excuses uh, f- for people. It's, it's trying to come up with reasons why people are not responsible for the things that they do and the position that they're in in life. And along with just being an incorrect way of looking at things, it's extraordinarily destructive because it encourages people to stay down rather than get up, to, to stay where they are rather than move forward. So free will, the most beautiful truth of all, but also probably nowadays uh, the most unpopular. And if we're going to talk about race, all of these things need to be part of the conversation. So there you go. Starbucks couldn't solve racism, but I think I just did. I, you're welcome. It's, uh, it's over. I've solved it, and I've cracked the code, and, and that's it. All in a day's work. All in a day's podcast. Remember, at Matt Walsh Blog, and uh, find me, Facebook.com slash Matt Walsh Blog. I will talk to you next week. Acruce Salus. Godspeed.